passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of the Eggshells Podcast Companion. This is an audible companion to Eggshells, Pro Wrestling in the Tokyo Dome, a book that chronicles the history of pro wrestling inside Japan's most famous stadium. In this podcast, we take a look at a different year of history each each episode and with a different guest. And joining me this time is a fellow author, is chronicling the history of Pride Fighting Championships for the first time in his book Before a Fall. Uh, Lee Daly is joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, th- thanks for thanks for joining me. And um, what I always do at, at the start of every podcast is is just uh, to get an impression of of your background. Um, what was your connection? You know, and we're going to talk about 2002 being a huge year for for Pride in in just a second. Um, but what was your what was your connection to pro wrestling, combat sports, and all of that stuff? What's all, what's your connection to it now, and what was your connection to it in 2002? Well, in 2002, I'd actually sort of taken a very conscious decision. I remember it really clearly. I think it was the Armageddon pay per view or something. I think whenever Chris Jericho won the unified titles in 2001. Uh, or the undisputed title, I think it was like uh, I made a very conscious decision that I was going to completely stop watching professional wrestling and um, did that, you know, um, and then didn't take it up. Uh, same with combat sports too, actually, really uh, didn't take it back up until 13 years later. So, um, yeah, 2001 and then in 2002, yeah, I would have just been uh, kind of listening to hardcore punk and uh, you know, kind of slacking off in school and, and doing all those things I was doing when I was uh, when I was seventeen years old, and um, yeah, so I mean, I got into it. Um, I kind of got into Pride actually through Japanese pro wrestling in the sense of I used to read Power Slam magazine and um, you know go through all the different promotions, so I knew you know names like Nasawa or you know. Um, Chono or that kind of stuff, but just through the magazine. Mm-hmm. And then when I started to get a bit of, a bit of disposable income, I actually started to um, sort of start ordering tapes off uh, Strong Style Tapes, I believe, was the tape trader. The guy's first name, I think, was Mark. I, I can't remember. I actually did some research on this recently. Um, but that was where I got my got my fix. And um, one of the tapes that he had on offer was the Pride um, 2000 uh, Open Weight Grand Prix. And that was kind of where that started. I think I might have ordered some other tapes too, 
maybe like the best of Tiger Mask or something, he would put these kind of crazy compilations together. And um, yeah, there was there was a lot of sort of stuff that I that I got into. But of all the tapes, the one that I loved the most, funnily enough, was something I'd never seen before, which was was Pride. And I mean, I was aware of the UFC, but at that time in 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 rural Ireland in two thousand and one, there wasn't a whole lot of distribution channels where you could actually see it. So um, Pride was my first experience of MMA, and, and kind of I guess that's where it started the whole the whole love affair, and and that's kind of why, you know, uh, a lot of these many years, nearly twenty years later, the um, the the book has kind of uh, resulted from that, you know. Yeah, right. And and tell us a little. Yeah, that's a that's a good segue. Tell us a little bit about the book because. Um, you know, there, there really isn't, and it's something I get asked a lot about chronicling like Japanese wrestling history in into English, and and um, there really isn't enough of that, and there certainly isn't enough when it comes to um, you know topics topics like Pride, even though it's been a very big sort of area of discussion, I think in in Japanese media over the, over the last couple of months and years, and and lots of books coming out in Japanese, but nothing really in English at all, right? Mm. Yeah, and and I mean, I think to be fair, you know, pride and pride is a bit more of a kind of an exalted place within MMA as a whole than Mary. Maybe some of the Japanese, you know, and sorry, what I mean is within the West than maybe some of the, some Jap, you know Japanese wrestling enjoys within the West. Um, just because I think there was a lot of foreign stars that were went to pride because it was the premier mixed martial arts promotion in the world and um yeah so but that was the kind of the genesis of the book for me was just kind of continually seeing well nobody's writing this you know okay well, well i'll just kind of give it a go because I've, I've done some sports writing before and um it was kind of extraordinary to me yeah that it hadn't been done um in terms of the book a lot of it just does draw on sort of existing English language resources. You know, I don't speak Japanese, unfortunately. Um, but I think there is a whole pile of work there to be done in terms of, I think, the stuff that you're doing as well, in terms of taking some of the insights, um, particularly from like the the, the the Japanese speakers and, you know, translating them into English, because there's not a whole lot that we have in terms of resources, both in pro wrestling and, and mixed martial arts from Japan at that time, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just a shame to see all that go to waste, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's a huge help from the from the Western fans' perspective to finally get everything put into context. I think, um, and certainly, I I would think you know not many sections in your book will be bigger than than two thousand and two. It's it's kind of lucky that that everything's worked out in this way because I mean two thousand two was was such a huge year for for Pride in general, right? You had like the the Fry Takayama match. Um, and you had that that huge crowd. What, what was that? It was that biggest drawing crowd was in two thousand two, right? Yeah, it was the National Stadium in Tokyo, I believe. I think maybe you were looking at around ninety thousand or so in attendance, and that was a co promoted show with with K one. Um, and you know they had like some a lot of like just very big and historical matches. So that was the first. Um, it was um, Yoshida's first, uh, who, who was who had been a, an Olympic medalist for Japan in, in judo. And uh, it was his first kind of foray into mixed martial arts. Now, he, he did a grappling match with um, Hoist Gracie, which was kind of uh, reminiscent of the uh, Gracie-Kimura fight that Helio Gracie had done 50 years, uh, I believe it was, uh, before that. And um, then they had the, the Bob Sapp and, and um, uh, Nogueira fight. I think we'll talk a bit about both of them uh, maybe later. But yeah, that was a huge year for Pride and, and one of the, probably you could argue, their, their high points. You know, I think that, um, it's right 2001 with the, the, the sort of Sakurab and Vanderlei rivalry that really pushed him to the next level and Sakurab as, as well himself particularly um, and then I think after that they, they would obviously have some pretty big moments but 
that was probably the, 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 the high point for Pride was that stadium show. Yep. And uh, 2002 elsewhere in Japan, it was a, a very busy year in, in Japan because the, the World Cup uh, arrived in Japan and, and South Korea in, in 2002. Um, also, let's see, what was top of the pop charts? Are you a Japanese pop fan, Lee? Uh, unfortunately not. No, my, my knowledge of Japanese so, pop. Uh, your, your knowledge of Ayumi Hanazaki and H has, has gone past you. So, uh, yes, uh, everything kicking off in 2002. And in 2002, a very, very sort of uh, a turbulent year, so to speak, um, for for wrestling and for New Japan in particular. You know, this is kind of where really we'll see in the next episode in 2003 was when the, the sort of House of Cards really crumbles and there's this, this massive loss in business. Um, but a lot of things, it was all changed in 2002. And I think like really, yo, we've been talking about MMA encroaching into to New Japan over the last few years and, and what we would call the Enochism era. But, um, you know, that's, that's been going on, but it, it really sort of took hold, I think, in 2002. And um, it's something I always like, want to ask or want to gauge especially when i'm talking to someone that's that's more on the mma end of things than the pro wrestling end you know because pro wrestling's my my wheelhouse and i'm i'm not really an mma guy um so like what do you think lead like now looking back on it um about that that inokiism era and yeah i mean in looking back on it i i you know i didn't maybe didn't see much of the, the style at the time um but looking back on it now you know, in terms of kind of an in-ring perspective, some was quite a lot of fun. You know, I think I had a, a lot of fun looking at the, the Fry and Bass Root and stuff from, from these cards. You know, in terms of like a business or kind of an overall perspective, like I think there's two ways to look at it. You know, I think one is, you know, Inoki kind of put his wrestlers into impossible positions in MMA fights. And that was what killed, you know, the business. Um, and also then obviously put over MMA guys to a huge extent inside pro wrestling. Mm. Um, but, you know, like... I, the, the thing I've been thinking about really, and, and and that's changed my perspective and the research for the book and talking to, talking to you and a few other people, is, you know, what else would they have done? Because at the end of the day, MMA was a huge trend. Uh, it, it really did take a lot of pro wrestling's audience. And that was a process that you can't, you know, stop. So how do you then react to that? And, you know, I think that they, they did their best from a creative standpoint. And, um if they had maybe taken the, the, the route maybe that some people have been keen on and arguing for it to, to stay pure pro wrestling, you know, that might have that might have reflected poorly on them too. So it's hard to know, you know, and I think it's easy to look back in hindsight and say, well, you know, this is this is how they should have done things. But for me, for, as a fan, looking at it, you know, it's it's quite a lot of fun. And I think at the time, if I'd been following it closely and, and had access to a lot of that stuff, you know, I think I would have quite enjoyed you know, Don Fry kind of throwing people around in, in, a, in a, an exaggerated, uh, dramatic fashion, you know? Yeah, I, I think, like, for sure, there was, um, it was reactionary and that they had to be reactionary in, in a certain way. And I think, like, history proved that they were, they reacted in, in the wrong way, you know, perhaps, especially when you saw, like, Noah 
rise um you know over this this early period by sort of pushing pro wrestling hard um but at the same time you know i i think like it's it's very easy and and you know i mean you can say um objectively that that it was a business failure but um that's not to say that there's there's you know that it's all bad and that's not to say that there there weren't some um you know artistic successes uh within that that period but one thing lee that was not an artistic success was the first match i want to look at here which was uh wrestling world 2002 as uh kendo kashin defeated uh, defended the iwgp junior heavyweight title against daijiro matsui um this match i i wanted to choose really because it it was kind of like kind of exemplified some of the uh some of the, the the rico aspects of um you know mma fighters in pro wrestling you know i found it's kind of fun now i don't know if you should be doing a comedy match with an mma guy involved necessarily mm. but yeah i thought it was fun like the, the, there's a kind of initial stages of the match where cashin kind of basically intimates he wants nothing to do with um matsuya like he just kind of tries to leave the ring i think at different points and just yeah. like completely chickens out um yeah, that was that was quite fun. You know, Matsuya, he's kind of like a lot of what ended up happening. He's kind of part of this stable of guys that I would say they kind of ended up being jobbers in kind of both MMA and pro wrestling. You know, right. it's, it's the key thing to say, like, and I will as an MMA fan um, and will defend this to the other MMA fans. Um, MMA absolutely had jobbers within Pride and probably still has them today. Like it's people who are, you know, put put there as a body to lose. And that was kind of his job. Um, Matsuya also like really has a win over Rampage Jackson um, after Rampage kind of needed him in the groin and got DQ'd so he's got an interesting enough career himself um, but yeah there's also like there's a few botches I think um, Matsuya goes for like a, a dive or something that <laughs> yeah I mean like in a five minute match then like there's, there's not much to go over and I think the dive <laughs> is the only thing that stays with you on this match where it's like Matsui like I think he goes for a run-up, right? And then he kind of bottles it. Like, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I don't fancy doing like a, a tope suicida. And then he, I think he was, he was trying to just slingshot himself over with, with a plancha, but like he had those MMA gloves on, right? Like, you know, he just sort of loses grip on the ropes. He kind of falls over and then get something together where he just like gets on the right and just gonna fucking do something. It jumps and then misses cash in anyway. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a massive comedy of errors. Yeah, no, I mean I I'd interpret it as is he going for like a spinning DDT or something where he's like gonna land on him and then implant him or something? But no, uh, it makes much far more sense that he just basically had no idea what he was doing. Um, yeah. Because yeah, that was really that really stuck with me. That was kind of weird. Um but yeah, again, like sort of intentional and unintentional comedy in, in what is supposed to be kind of a an MMA versus wrestling kind of match. Um and I guess the finish, um, which I think is some form of roll up or something, like it's mm. supposed to kind of play off you know, Cashin's a pro wrestler and kind of knows what he's doing. Um and, and Matsuya doesn't like a, I assume that's what it was, but uh, overall yeah, a bit, a bit, a bit of a throwaway match. A bit, yeah, a bit, a bit weird, and like we're in like peak weird Kendo Kashin like period here, you know, 
where he he was sort of kind of had this schizophrenic character where like he was he was a different guy you know he did we had that 2001 match where he went in under his real name you know without the mask um and then he put the mask back on and he was a completely different person kind of thing um and he came out like with um with three titles um at this point because i and matsui they were praying up they they sort of played up that he was takada dojo so he was trained by nobuhiko takada um and nobuhiko takada was like you know one of the early um iwgp junior heavyweight champions so like um Kashin comes out with three belts so he comes out with the original belt that takada held he comes out with the the current yeah. belt and then he comes out as well with just like a random belt that he made <laughs> um so then when he get you know when he does win he gets all the the three belts back he just like throws the other two away and keeps the one that he's made for himself yeah. um, like fake, fake belts for fake belts are just like the, the instant heel thing to do like I, I can't I can't recount how many different um different sort of heels and, and various times like just create belts for themselves um, I think also, yeah, like it's also blatantly a merchandising opportunity at various points. But uh, look, if you have two, if you have two, I think you might as well have three because, you know, you might as well have one on each arm, one around the waist at that point. So, yeah, full full marks to cash. And I think for for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, your match, this one, I mean, I went for, for juniors, but you went for the big boys. Giant Silver takes on Manabu Nakanishi. Yeah, so for one thing, I thought it was really great seeing kind of Nakanishi like in his prime, um, and like because I'm, I'm used to very much seeing like the the opening match Nakanishi, um, you know, kind of be highly immobile basically. Um, I think he had that uh, Nagata uh, that mm. was pretty good, um, mm-hmm. but that's kind of my usual experience of of Nakanishi. So yeah, it was it was fun seeing him kind of you know be sort of fresh faced and and kind of uh, you know pretty mobile and really athletic and and quite a built guy. Uh, Silva is just like um, so. Silva, I mean, he he came from basketball um, in the similar way that Giant Gonzalez had. I think he was a Brazilian international uh, basketball player that did the the, the, uh, the World Wrestling Federation signed, mm-hmm. and um, I think he was entirely trained by them by by uh, by Tom Pritchard and by um, Dory Funk Jr. And um, yeah, just kind of like had that short run. And then get signed by by New Japan, and like in the match, there's kind of a lot of big stuff from him, like you know, just kind of the typical spots, like the big boot and and that kind of stuff. Um, but like his his kicks aren't very convincing. Like he really, he really doesn't get the how you make something like how you make a work kick convincing. Like I assume he'd either kick somebody for real or just like does what he does here, which is like just really not 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 trying to attempt anything at all um there's a spot where he jumps from the ring to the f- ground like the, the crowd kind of grabs. i love that Gasp, like yeah. He, yeah 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 because he, he sort of grabs the root and they're like he's gonna he's gonna do it like a plunger he's just like climbs up <laughs> yeah, yeah that was brilliant i mean that, that was that was pretty fun um and yeah and look to be honest like the weird thing is like there's a lot of parallels between pro wrestling and mma sometimes and like he's he's the same where um, he suffered from the same issue in MMA that he kind of suffered from pro wrestling, which is a lot of big guys do, which is there's an assumption and expectation that like the big guy will be like hyper mean and, you know, will, will like be able to like use a strength and stuff. And actually sometimes they're like pretty laid back guys and they don't really want to hurt people. But Silva, that's what you saw was he didn't, he, he wasn't fully in control of his body, you know, kind of, I, maybe that comes from just being like a basketball player and kind of, 
just being from from I guess a in quotes shoot sport background. Um, you know, uh, and and yeah, so Traders Mike he's pretty he's pretty staid and, and he's not particularly fantastic. Um, the, the count out was kind of weird. Like, I, I don't know at this point, are they saving giant silver for something down the road? Um, was he pretty new in the company and, and they kind of, they wanted to give Nakanishi a win, but not a pin. So that was kind of strange to me as well. Like why they would kind of end on a count out in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, th- I think probably in the end we, we went and, and chose probably the two worst matches on, on this yes. entire card actually. <laughs> um, you know, especially when it, it was headlined by, um, you know, Jun, uh, Jun Akiyama and, uh, Yuji Nagata, which was something they were, they were building to since, um, since 2001. And, uh, that was a great main event, but, I think all in all, like Wrestling World 2002 was was a bit of a, a stumble, you know, especially when the next show uh, that's that's on our list was the um, anniversary show, uh, the the Strong Style Spirit, you know, anniversary show in in May. Um, so a little bit later, you know, two months after their their actual um, anniversary. But one thing. I don't know whether you were able to see more of the the entire card, Lee, or, or just the matches we we picked out. But whereas, like in January, it was very much like here's our MMA guys, and then here's our pro wrestling matches. You know, um, with this show in May, it was it was a really diverse show. You know, and I got asked um, in an interview about the the book a little while ago, like whether there are any like hidden gems in terms of Tokyo Dome shows, and I would definitely choose this one. Because it's such a, you get such a grab, grab bag of like lots of really different stuff, different styles, and and really interesting matches in that, uh, in that May show. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, the one thing that that was kind of interesting to me was the kind of Bass Rudin Nakanishi, you know, against Nakanishi and Don Fry Yasuda kind of confrontation because the whole thing is just like this one big long angle. Yeah, um, they, they and do it, the Paul Heyman special, right? <laughs> it's like the one match bleeds into the other. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, um, yeah, and it just it makes them look like you know kind of a million bucks. And again, I assume being put over people that that New Japan are kind of willing enough to to sacrifice and and being built up. Um, but yeah, I mean, like uh, you know, I assume they were all kind of working together as well. Like the, this was a stable, wasn't it? Was it a it was a stable kind of gaijin that they brought in? Um, they were all kind of MMA guys. Yeah, and. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely like yeah this this thing of the the LA dojo uh, guys together, um, but it was there's good and there's bad in just this entire thing, and like I think the good is Baz written Manabe <laughs> Nakanishi, and like the bad is Frank Yasuda, like reasonably clearly, you know, because it's. I mean, first like the the angle going into this match, I don't know if you know, Lee, was that. Um, basically everybody's training in, uh, in the LA dojo and uh, Fry's leading some sort of grappling class in the LA dojo and uh, Tadao Yasuda shows up late and this angers Tom Fry to the point that they have a blood feud <laughs> that, that leads to the Tokyo Dome. Yeah, that's kind of credible though. You know, Fry is... Yeah, he's kind of a weird character in that sense. That you know, he would be the kind of guy that would would you know want to put you into the hospital for turning up late to class. <laughs> but I mean, the thing is, I, this almost goes pretty much directly to what you were just saying about Giant Silver, where they do the stretcher job, where Yasuda's getting to the ring, he gets jumped by by Don Fry, and then they they stretcher him off. 
for Fry doing really kind of fuck all, you know, like he <laughs> sort of knocks him down and hits him a couple of times, which, you know, I mean, especially in the pro wrestling context where we're conditioned to, you know, you, you get stretched off for being like DDT'd on the concrete or, you know, something absolutely horrendous. But, you know, he was sort of pushed over and punched a couple of times. It's like he could probably get gut, gut out that one, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I'd, I'd forgotten, um, you know, in the interim between writing the book and, and doing the rewatch for the podcast, I'd, I'd forgotten about this, this angle. So like, um, you know, it, it was nice that we, we got the bonus of, of Baz Ritten, who, I mean, he's, he's one of the shortlist of, of guys that, that really did well out of like the, the MMA crossover stuff and the Enochism, you know, he was certainly, um, you know, one of the the very best of like pro wrestlers that that got a shot at you know of MMA fighters rather that got a shot at pro wrestling you know and he's a, he's a guy mm. that I would have liked to have seen more in New Japan and and I think Fry like both him and Fry are, are they really get it you know Fry because what happened with Fry obviously was he he left the UFC to to go to uh, New Japan you know not and that really wasn't as part of Inokiism wave I think it was just the fact that. Um, the the tapes with the UFC had been a big hit on VHS, so he was kind of ready made star going there. Um, sure, and, he kind and of, it was it was the UFO situation as well, right? Where Inoki wanted a an ace to to head up uh, his UFO promotion, um, mm. and you know they they'd lost Shamrock or whatever, and I think like Don Fry came in, you know, at just about the right time, what around early ninety eight, a little bit before then. Um, yeah, that would have been then. Yeah, and and also yeah, look, Rutan. Uh, the interesting thing about Rutan is um, he did before he even started in uh, Pancras uh, in '93. He was doing, if you remember, Eurosport used to show these things all the time. It was kind of like kung fu demonstrations, like really athletic, kind of crazy mixed martial arts or sort of crazy martial arts stuff, which mm. really bears like an incredible similarity to to pro wrestling. So, I think that the fact that he had been in Pancras, which, you know. It, Pancras is, uh, there's a whole discussion in how closely related that was to pro wrestling or not, um, maybe for another day, but definitely it, it was a guy who was used to performance and understood kind of, you know, how you get an audience into something. And yeah, it really shows here. Um, he's really, you know, he, he's very good at, at, at um, doing his spots and, and has good facial expressions and all the other stuff, you know? So um, yeah, I think the two of them are really, you know, they're really great. And um, you know, again, yeah, somebody that I think that, uh, some of the better parts i think of enochism or or that period yeah and i think nakanishi was conversely you know he was the same deal you know and i think like you were talking about it was it was interesting to see nakanishi uh younger and, and more mobile and he was a guy that i think really benefited from the enochism situation because if you watch sort of enochium and we talked about it on the the 99 episode when he was getting the the sort of when he was basically being heated up to wrestle Goldberg, you know, through throughout the throughout ninety nine and that match never happened in the end. Um but he was very much in that Goldberg mold. Um where mm. he you know, he'd do a little he'd do a few strikes, but I mean he was kind of like very big, strong, charismatic, um, and just like explosive, you know. So I mean, they they do that, you know. You you can do spears, and then you can do the the Argentine backbreaker, and you know, fairly limited uh, offensively. But when he was put into the MMA scenarios as well, that that gave him a little bit of diversity, I think, to to his character and a little bit of of depth, um, you know, and, and made him much more compelling figure, you know. So I think like with this match. 
you know, it wasn't entirely always the, the smoothest thing, but I thought like it was, um, you know, they, they kept it simple and like, it was, a, you know, there was just a really good story to it of like Baz written just like taking, um, Nakanishi's head and like refusing to let go. Right. You know, and the mm. number of times he gets slammed, it's suplex and he's still got like the, the, the chin lock in there. Um, you know, it, it really sort of established, I think, Bajran as, as this really sort of in, intense guy that, that, that was, um, that was just going to doggedly hang on to you. Um, so yeah, it, it was a good one. Mm. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, the, you know, and the, there's a big, I think, a discussion over like, um, you know, oftentimes pro wrestling, like how much is too much and what should you do and what should you not do? Like, and that can change so quickly. And I think we saw it as well with the first card, um, I think, in the Akiyama and um, uh, Nagata fight where they were kind of like a match where they were kind of doing an armbar spot. And I think like at the time, people knew what the armbar meant because they, they saw it in, in MMA so regularly. And just here, as with Rutan, where he has a as a basically like a sleeper hold on uh, or a rear naked choke, um, like those are submissions that end really quickly. But they do them very well because what they do is they don't allow a lot of dwell time. They don't use them as rest holds. They mm. just transition from one thing to another, and the crowd then understands and expects that. Now today, because you don't see as many submissions in mixed martial arts anymore. You're probably able to get away with using a sleeper as a kind of that old sort of spot where the referee raises the guy's hand three times and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, for, for me, I think that's a good example of knowing and working a shoot hold into pro wrestling at a time when the audience's expectations are, this is actually something that's very dangerous and something that could, could lead to the end of the match, you know? Yeah, yeah. And conversely, when we did actually get Frey and Yasser, a, a, a much shorter affair, um, your takes on uh, Tarao Yasuda, uh Lee, who kind of, I guess, you know, lucked into his signature win in MMA and that and that sort of shot him into to a push in pro wrestling that he wasn't really ready for either. Yeah, I mean, there's not enough time to really evaluate him. And, you know, I think it's, it's a pretty short angle, you know. Uh, one thing actually, um, which I thought was pretty funny was... Um, Bass doing the, uh, we're going to give you 20 seconds to get out here gimmick, um, you know, for the match. And Yasuda kind of like, you know, sprinting to the ring. But like he counts it down by like giving the mic to uh, Tong Fry, who like is coming. I think initially he's like, what the fuck are you doing? But like, you know, Bass kind of says one. Then Don Fry has to say two, and then whoever the third guy is has to say three, and it's just like it's just a really weird kind of thing, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, not not a whole lot to evaluate him on. And again, yeah, look, a guy that probably got a little lucky in mixed martial arts. The, the guy I always think of as the person for me that's kind of the mark for Sakuraba side for kind of bigger Japanese fighters was um, uh, Fujita, and he lost to Fujita in like pretty short order um so you know i think that yeah it's it's a guy who got lucky once against Lebanner and um then obviously you know lucky <laughs> kind of picking selectively maybe with with guys he wanted to push kind of decided okay this is a this guy's a big deal you know although obviously here they they were comfortable enough with using him to just completely job him out you know and kind of uh, give him the comeback of arising from the dead um from the stretcher but you know not not giving him much else in terms of uh, in terms of actual action you know yeah yeah um yeah but uh our the you know the the rest of the show it, it wasn't all sort of this sort of shoot style of pro wrestling although um it led up to like an amazing main event which we'll we'll get into into in a second which was very much in that style you know but i mean you also had as i said like this this huge diversity of, of stuff 
Um, you know, so you had uh, Chono and Misawa in there, which was like a, a huge, um, hugely pushed dream match. Um, you know, you had Daisuke Sekimoto like in a New Japan wing, <laughs> um, but it was very strange to see a young Daisuke Sekimoto. And um, incredibly enough, like women's matches in New Japan, because this was kind of part of a very short um experiment with with having a women's division in in new japan which uh, eventually kind of uh crumbled and went its own way um but this this all led up to uh and appropriately enough to to date this episode um we're just coming off of the takia mania uh show which went down on friday and uh mm. the main event here was was yuji nagata against um yoshiro takiyama in really a fantastic uh fantastic match yeah this is kind of really yuji nagata at his prime and takiyama working with someone that's that's so in sync with with the kind of wrestler he is yeah and it's it's really a great match and again one of the reasons why is because it actually parallels sort of the mix the the fight that he had with with fry quite a lot because nagata the kind of one of the running themes of the match is that nagata is trying to kind of avoid Takayama's power. Takayama, I think, like kind of presses him into the corner a few times, kind of presses him against the ropes, and, and Nagata is trying to kind of see if he can move a little bit. And because um, I mean, Takayama, like in a shoot fight, managed to execute basically a belly to back suplex on Fry. Um, he he like, which is kind of crazy to do um, because Fry is an exceedingly large man and is also like you know was a wrestler. Um, and yeah, the fact that that Takayama can kind of do that for a shoot kind of is is you know, pretty crazy consider when, when, you know, you come, it comes to pro wrestling. So, <clears throat> and yeah, like going back to the theme of kind of big men, like Takayama kind of knows, like, even though he's maybe not the most like kind of athletic looking large man, he, he does have like really good sense and knowledge of how to use his, um, his size to his advantage. He's not, um, you know, he doesn't tend to pull his punches. He, he, he everything he does look, looks really credible. Um, and yeah, and it's one of these things where I, you know, I think he, um, you know, he, he was still able to have like a similarly good match with Nakamura, maybe is another 10 years after this or something like that, and eight, uh, seven or eight years. Mm. And yeah, just really, I think um, the whole match just reflects that. And, and Nagata, who, like I've, you know, seen him and he's maybe 50 now and he's still fantastic. And seeing him kind of back in the day, um, you know, it just it just really was a great, great, fantastic match to, to see, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and um yeah, I mean, it it was really sort of Takeyama kind of wasn't. I mean, I wouldn't want to say a, a non-entity, but like you know, he was kind of a, a promising youngish face, and and he had his size in in UWFI. But I think it wasn't until like this this era that he really came into his own, and um, you know, it was just the the fact that the demanding, you know, such a demanding uh, schedule physically. Uh, mentally and, and everything else, you know, I think probably had uh, you know terrible effects on on his health, you know, and that would have uh, you know I think played a big part into his into Takayama's stroke. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's wild to think that this this match with Nagasali was like about two or three weeks before the the Don Fry fight. Um, yeah, so, and he was um, yeah, and he he was a last minute replacement on that fight card. Um, Fry was supposed to fight Mark Coleman, who kind of up until that point had been like one of Fry's only losses, um, and I think actually maybe even his own loss. So Fry kind of has said specifically, you know, he was just very pissed off um, because he wasn't it wasn't fighting Coleman, and I think the, that all of that combined with the fact that I think they both knew, you know, what what 
sort of entertainment was about and, and both kind of didn't really want to back down kind of resulted in, in the Fry versus Takayama kind of, you know, uh, gift gift for the ages. I think at a time before gifts became widespread, it was very much a, you know, kind of just like a few seconds of absolute madness, you know? Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, to a lot of casual fans, you know, everybody knows Fry Takayama, you know, and, and everybody knows that event and, um, you know, to to go from perhaps let's let's go from the, one of the shining lights in in Japanese MMA to at least uh, a less well known event in uh, whether we call it MMA or whether we call it pro wrestling or what or whatever this was uh, UFO legend on August the eighth, two thousand and two. Um, now I say like whether this is MMA, whether this is pro wrestling or not. It, I mean, it was a pro wrestling card. Um, but it was promoted so strangely, which was probably, you know, one of the reasons why it was, it was a massive failure. Um, but, uh, yeah, to, to give some, some background, this was broadcast actually on primetime live, um, on NET. So like this was a kind of a, a huge, a huge deal. Right. And so when, uh, sorry, when NTV, like, um, when they did the, the broadcast deal, they, they were doing this whole thing of, finally like pro wrestling is back on primetime live you know and that that's what how they were pushing it um but then the promoter of the event was saying oh yeah this this isn't this isn't your normal pro wrestling like all the matches i you know i don't know if you've heard the, the expression gachinkoli which which means like everything's it's a real fight <laughs> everything on here right uh, you know, so it's like, what is this? <laughs> you know, nobody knew what what is this show? It's like a pro wrestling show, is an MMA show. It's like Inoki, you know, Inoki was saying, um, oh, Muhammad Ali is going to be there, and then he wasn't there. You know, what I mean, <laughs> it, it was a real mess, and I think like that that comes through when when you watch, uh, you know, what's left of the show that's that's around on the internet. Yeah, I mean, and. Um... Yeah, like obviously Inoki always meant to kind of exploit, you know, never willing to kind of dispute you of the notion that something is is a shoot, you know. I mean, certainly looking at some of the fights, um, like the ones that I was able to see, I think that the Noguera versus um, Kikuda one, like it, it, you're always in a dangerous spot when you're trying to guess what's real and what's not. Now with Noguera, um, who by the way is is ringside for that that the the card um, the anniversary card and the whole fry and rooting kind of um, uh, angle they were they were ringside and not looking particularly impressed but Noguera um, would have been um, probably champion at the point you know which tells you like a how good a relationship Anoki had with Pride and kind of b like maybe just how like open Pride were just being like yeah sure you can have our champion for what may or may not be a pro wrestling show. Um, I think that's something the UFC would never be caught dead with because they're, they were hyper and still are hyper, hyper conscious of not having anything um, to do with kind of fixed matches or any suggestion of that. Um, but the one thing about this fight basically is um, I think it's up online, maybe on daily motion or something like that is um, like Kakuta is a lot lighter, which isn't like rare. They pride, you know, kind of did a lot of mismatches too. Um, so he's kind of maybe around a welterweight rather than a heavyweight. Noguera has a good like sort of 20 to 30 kg on them. And in the first round, basically Noguera kind of takes him down and there's a lot of kind of grappling on the ground and Kikuda's like quite game and kind of manages to escape, which is strange because like Noguera is like a ridiculously high level grappler and outweighs him by 30 kg 
which is strange. Um, but then what happens basically in the second round is like he just literally comes out and waffles him. Like he just hits him mm. really hard. Yeah. And Nogueira trained with the Cuban boxing, uh, Cuban Olympic boxing team. So he was a really, he was a really good boxer on top of everything else. So one thing that I think we, is pretty clear was on the historic record prior to like, there was a lot of agreements sometimes that a match would maybe go a certain round or people wouldn't do certain things. And I do wonder with this match, maybe there was some form of agreements where Nogueira, you know, <laughs> agreed that maybe it wouldn't, it would go around and then he could have his way because he just comes out very aggressively in the second round. It just mm. like surprises him. So, yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me if the matches were all those varying attempts of you know half half works, half shoots, and and just like sure. different ways. You know, so that in watching that match, that that definitely struck me as being a bit strange. You know. Yeah, 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 and certainly also, obviously, more on the the pro wrestling end was was Fujita and Yasuda, um, you know, two huge <laughs> bank guys, yeah, really, really in there. Um, and Inoki, Inoki, sort of saying uh, he does a promo before before that match where he's going, oh, "This is the match that people want to see the most, and it's the one I want to show the least." You know, he's kind of saying how cutty up he is uh, about booking it, um, <laughs> and it's it's probably like the most boring. <laughs> um, but I don't know whether you could call this this boring or, or sad or like whatever but like the main event here of Naomi Ogawa and Matt Gafari who um I mean can you give any testament Lee, to, to Matt Gafari in, in MMA circles at this point in time you know, because I mean he wasn't a you know he was he was in the what 96 Olympics I believe um yeah and uh yeah evidently had done very very little after that um and this is a sad thing i don't know where you saw this this match lee i watched it on not on daily motion or youtube or anything like that i watched it on nico nico video which is like the japanese service um and one of the things with when you watch videos on nico nico you get the comments scrolling across the screen um, so like the, the comments where Matt Kavari comes out and it's, it's, um, you know, it's all very, very much, uh, a lot of body shaming going on here. Uh, you know, and, and people saying, oh, Matt Kavari's blown up before he even gets to the, gets to the ring. Um, and Agara sort of makes shorts work of Kavari and then literally gets on the mic afterwards and, and says that he didn't expect his opponent to be so fat. Um, it's, it's not a good look, this match. Yeah, it's kind of a crazy confluence of sort of circumstances where, yeah, Gafari, I think, is a guy that have, like, obviously legitimate background and experience, you know, and, and someone that I think Anoki loves, um, you know, Olympic silver, silver medalist in wrestling. Uh, I think he was Iranian-American. I'm not sure if he was born in Iran or in America, but he, he competed for the United States. Um, and, yeah, this is his one and only uh, MMA match. It's very strange kind of action because what happens is um, – like if he takes down Ogawa, but Ogawa kind of gets back to his feet, nails him really hard once. Gafari complains of like contact lens gets dislodged or something, or like lodged in his eye somehow. And like the referee, like in 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 um, MMA now under the universal rule set, like what happens is the referee like intervenes and like if there's a kick kick to the groin or, or an eye poke, he he intervenes right away and stops the action. <laughs> but this what just happens is Ogawa hits him. Gafari like clearly like stops and like pulls back and holds his eye and Ogawa just like keeps going and the referee allows it and just like that's how Ogawa wins by getting him down and like kind of beating on him um and the other strange thing about this is um Hickson Gracie is in the ring beforehand um yeah. and this is two years after he'd fought, sort of fought Funaki um 
because what happened was after the um the, the two fights against Takata, um they kind of left Pride and um sort of established kind of a, a unique event for the Funaki fight. And I assume at this point, I assume Anoki's trying to um and, and it doesn't Ogawa actually challenge Gracie at the end of it? Um because they he certainly showed yeah, yeah. Like this was um supposed to be the relaunch of, of UFO. You know, UFO which was like Inoki's sort of valent um vanity MMA project that eventually, you know, it turned into um you know it, it turned into more pro wrestling than than anything mma but um yeah that they, they had some poor poor shows that uh that didn't draw enough poor, poor and they shut down in 99 and so this was kind of a reunion of ufo but also supposedly a, a relaunch and uh like um yeah nippon telly was like looking at doing more but basically this this didn't perform um anywhere near to their expectations in terms of viewership so they they nixed the tv deal after one show and so that was it but uh yeah certainly the the initial plan was they were going to do another one and then to like ago and gracie would have been part of that yeah yeah and ogawa you know being this hand-picked charge of of uh enoki and, and at the very end of the match he literally puts his arm around him while while the sort of there's there's photographs taken i can imagine like for him a fight against hickson um you know at a point where hickson at that point i think he would have been nearly 40 um and ogawa i think probably would have been even though in mma he, he didn't have a fantastic run really um i think he got given a lot of pretty softball pretty soft opponents um he would have had a decent chance of beating hickson i think much better than, than either funaki or takata and i think at that point you know the enoki the enoki template for for ogawa being this this massive star both in in shooting and and pro wrestling would have really paid off um but yeah not to be i guess because like a lot of enoki ventures kind of um you know kind of ended ended before they, they were able to probably get it into its stride Sure. Yeah. And and an interesting, it was just an interesting side note, you know, I mean, like Inoki sort of promoting the show and he was promoting it against a New Japan show as well. You know, I mean, admittedly, they were in Hokkaido at the time, but uh, yeah, it, it was kind of wild. There was a, like a, a G1 show going on at the same time as like Inoki promoting his, his own UFO card, but like kind of spoke to that sort of, you know, that sort of schizophrenic almost like approach to, to what was going on within the company at the time. And like mm. the, the sort of booking side and then the ownership side um, being very much at odds with one another. And I think like we felt that as well with, um, you know, the last show uh, on this episode, which was uh, The Spiral, which was, uh, you know, kind of in hindsight, a very um, evocative title <laughs> for, for what was going on at the time. You know, I mean, everything that had happened in in 2002 for for new japan to gloss over this you know i mean after wrestling world in in 2002 after the january show um a whole bunch of people left um you know keiji muto leaves satoshi kojima leaves riki choshu leaves kensuke sasaki leaves you know everybody's uh tearing into the the you know what's happening behind the scenes with within new japan and this this schism between uh mixed martial arts and, and pro wrestling um so while the anniversary show was was a very good sort of attempt at at, at showing the, the good aspects of, of what can come out of this era um the spiral was um you know perhaps a, a 
deflating kind of end to the year in in the Tokyo Dome. But I think it it had some highlights, um, you know, and and Baz Ritten and Asami Nishimura. I think like if it if it's your type of match, uh, you know, and this this was the one that I chose from here. If, it, if that's your type of match, then then there's a lot to like in it. But it's kind of very stop start this match it, i mean like they went for like the european uh system of 10 three-minute rounds and i think if this was one 30-minute match it would have been much better did, did you not feel that way yeah well firstly i'm kind of i'm kind of crazy for any like real like real change that doesn't introduce more gimmicks to a match you know what i mean in the sense of like it's just an easy change to something that otherwise just would have been a straightforward mm. wrestling match so i'm kind of yeah i'm kind of not i'm not i'm not I'm high enough on the round thing. Um, the the weird thing for me is like, why? <laughs> like, yeah. is an MMA guy. Like, he's a kickboxer. Like, he's not a he's not a European catch wrestler by any means. So I've no real idea why they were like, okay, well, we'll just have this as a kind of world of sport style um, or German kind of Otto Vaughn style match. You know, <laughs> just sure. like just, I, I think like Nishimura was very much that. Like, you know, he was doing, although like Nishmer was, was never really like a, a top flight guy. Um, and I think probably because he was such a throwback and like, you really feel like, you know, Nishmer was probably around like 10, 20 years too, too late, you know, almost. Yeah. Um, cause you really feel if he was around in the eighties, he would have been like a, a huge star rather than coming up in the nineties. But he, or, so, or ten hmm. years too, or ten years too early, because I think we've got someone like Zach Saber Jr. who, yeah, perhaps is a similar body, you know, kind of, and and is now because he's unique in knowing that style. You know, he he he's able to kind of get himself over as a master mm. of submission and kind of you know is a limber guy instead of a powerful guy. So yeah, I think yeah, looking at Nishimura and kind of what he did, yeah, he, he reminds me a little bit of that kind of Zack Saber Junior. style gimmick, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's fair enough. Yeah. And it's like Nishimura, I mean, basically what also scuppered him is that he had a bout of cancer and like had to take, you know, a few years out of wrestling um, really at the time where he seemed poised to, to finally break through. Um, and so, you know, this was kind of his, his second real run, but like he had a lot of excursions. He was someone that when he didn't just sort of come back from his landing excursion then he's a new japan guy you know he he would go to america for like a few months and then come back and then go to like you know and he did do a lot of work in in germany um so that probably would be i guess where that that came from you know it was like oh i have to face beds written well let's find some sort of common ground and you're european so i suppose you've watched european wrestling. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and and that's where it came from but uh yeah i i think like part of it was and like you you really feel um in these shows as compared to like the other years that that the crowd's getting progressively quieter you know on these um as as the business sort of takes a tumble and i think like a lot of it was perhaps the audience wasn't really educated to like this kind of match so then when this is the first time they're seeing it and they're going to go for the the full 10 round three minute 30 minute draw then that it, it just seems kind of a, a little bit baffling you know whereas like if they'd had a couple of other like round space matches that that had finished earlier and, and were a bit more uh sort of highly paced them then maybe it would work but, mm. but like there's a great moment here where um nishimura i think goes outside of the ring 
Rudin goes outside after him and like right away um Tony St. Clair I think was a kind of catch wrestler who who had a run in New Japan was kind of known to the audience he like immediately comes out and like you know like really tells Rutan to get back in the ring like not even in the kind of red shoes like oh guys come on you know we really should get back in the ring like he's really insistent and like he teases giving Bass a yellow card um yeah. which I I think is absolutely I love that and then eventually when Rutan gets back in, I think Nishimura tries to get up and like Rutan nails him. So he just is like, right, that's definitely a yellow card, which like for me is like, it's great. But like, you know, um, the audience must have been completely perplexed looking at it. Like what the hell is going on? Because, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it really is some strange stuff. And I think Nishimura as well gets a yellow card too at a certain point. So it kind of, it, it evens the odds. And like the one thing I would say about the round system is it kind of, it's kind of interesting because it gets to towards those latter rounds. Yeah, like the, you do feel that the tension ratchet up. So it's a bit of a slow burner. Um, but yeah, totally. I think just plopping it in there out of nowhere and being like, hey, here's a bunch of rules that, you know, um, uh, you know, you've no idea of and no familiarity with. Um, it must have been challenging enough for the audience, especially if it was a long enough match. Yeah, I, I, that's uh, that's a good point. I, I, I do have a fondness for the yellow cards and like oh, you know, yeah. the, the world of sports style, like public warnings. Like we have that sort of, two public warnings and then you like you get disqualified you know i kind of you know i mean the the japanese way is you know whatever you do if you stop doing it after five then you're okay you know you've got to you've got to stop choking someone within a five count and then you know it's kind of okay but um yeah i I think like codifying it where you you have a, a set rule then it gives like the guys a little bit of leeway because you know they've got like these these three strikes and you're out kind of system um, mm. But at, at the same time, you know, it, I think it helps from a legitimacy sense and from a, a, a showbiz kind of standpoint. You know, I think there's a lot you can do with that. Um, mm. I mean, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be a purist uh, kind of uh, by any means. Um, but, you know, I think it's 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 an interesting thing, especially when you see now, like what's a DQ and what isn't is kind of a bit confusing. Like and actually um, and I think, yeah, it's there's something to be said for you know so having some form of rule or some form of um of kind of uh you know context to it really kind of sets these things up and yeah for for me i, I quite enjoy this i thought it was great really mm. um masihiro chono versus uh joni laura though uh lee you suggested this one um, <clears throat> yeah well i mean so. firstly i've got a bit of a bee in my bottom to think about over china i think like she's the butt of like some pretty awful sexist jokes i think when the wrestling mm. community um and also like even sort of you know people i won't necessarily name kind of like there's a lot of kind of in shoot interviews she'd come up a lot and people kind of roll her roll their eyes and go well you know she wanted to work with the man and she wanted to do all that sort of stuff and really you know kind of i think in wrestling she kind of gets criticized for doing stuff uh like for instance wanting to work with men in many even positions that like that's where the money is you know so that's what Mm -hmm. she sort of sought out you know so i think from that perspective I think that, that she gets a bit of a tough ride, especially um, I remember when, back when um, the WWF used to have a pretty good um, magazine. I think it was either, I think it was called Raw, but they, they carried a really good interview with her and, and she had a pretty kind of tough upbringing and, and a lot of other sort of things went into kind of making her the person that she was. So, you know, I think for me, you know, I, I, I not that I'm defending the New Japan run or defending this match by any means, I think she's a little bit more of a of a of a sort of joke to wrestling fans than she should be and i think maybe people need to be a bit more sort of circumspect about her her kind of legacy and and kind of you know what she did and um yeah but look this 
this isn't terrible, but you know, I, I can see why, you know, um, the one thing I'd give credit for to Chono for is like Chono really sells quite well for her. Like he, he, whatever reservations he may have had, like he, he really kind of does, you know, sell quite well and, and puts her over quite big, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean to, to, to get across, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, you, you can't really, um, understate that the Joni Laura had had a massive impact you know and uh, a massive I think positive impact but I think at the same time it's you know it's kind of somebody else that again if they were around you know if she were around sort of 10 15 years later you know in, mm. in the current um aspect you know I mean she she would be viewed very differently but I think then again at the same time uh you know in today's landscape in the west i I think her sort of her weak points and her failings from an in-ring perspective would stand out i think all the more you know um Mm. but uh yeah i mean what does sort of ram home is is like her offense which which is not great but my goodness like chono's like the the kenka kick she he hits on her like she gets all of those those boots um, and they look really, really brutal in this match. Um, yeah. you know, and it's really, it's really quite something to like hear. Like, I think there's a point where Chono gets in like a forearm and like the crowd just like really cheers quite hard. And it's like, you yeah. know, it, it's quite, it's quite striking to see that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think like the, the dynamic of this was, was messed up from the outset you know and i think they they just didn't really think or know what they were going to do you know i think it's like well we've got her but they didn't really think about what they were going to do with her you know i I think like on one aspect that was part of why they were working with all japan women's or what was left of all japan women's at this point was to kind of oh well we might have this women's division and put china at the front of it um but then you know that that wasn't going to happen. So then what it all came down to was like, okay, so Joni Laura is like the, you know, the, the new female famous American face from the LA dojo. So like, she's an Anoki, uh, you know, an Anoki, um, girl, you know, but then Chono at this point is the person that's standing up against Inoki. You know, he's the one that, that goes on it, that went on a tirade against him. And he's like now the sort of, it, progressing into this this legend role you know where he's he's an active wrestler but you know he's, he's someone that everybody's revered for so long and he's the voice of the people and the voice of the the pro wrestling fan at this point so it screws the dynamic up you know where i think like Joni laura really has to be someone that overcomes adversity but in the context of this match like she is the adversity that chono's overcoming so it doesn't really work you know yeah and i mean look look i think when you look at stuff that's successful today and i think that does a great job like whether it's pro wrestling eve or, or stardom or, or other promotions like what you do with women's wrestling is you know you you treat it as seriously as you do the men you give them an opportunity to um you know showcase it and and um you know, treat it, treat it as a, a seriously, you know, as you can. I think the problem with, with for so long, like I think when the West was kind of, it was taken as a bit of a joke, um, you know, let's be frank, like a bit of an opportunity for TNA and that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, here the problem is China's kind of pushing back or, or is in a position where she's pushing back against an existing dynamic where the focus is entirely on the men and she's okay. Well, I yeah. want to wrestle men when yeah. really the past that obviously would have worked out better overall um, and probably, yeah, would have worked out better for her in terms of career longevity within pro wrestling would have been, okay, well, 
you know, you will be a, you know, Aja Kong type or, or whatever, kind of a dominator and, and a big, scary, scary person within a women's division. Um, but, you know, those are those are historical things, again, that we're able to look back and say, well, you know, we know this now because of how we've seen Joshi and, and women's pro wrestling work out today, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just uh, just finally, before we wrap up here, like the, the spiral was was really built around, um, you know, the big what was going to be the the big sort of headline signing of, of an MMA guy in, in pro wrestling or pro wrestling to MMA to pro wrestling as we were in the just approaching the peak of sap mania at this mm. point in time and this was the new japan debut and and oddly enough i think pro wrestling debut um which is strange when you think he was in the power plant of of one bob the beast sap um i don't know if you if you caught caught that match uh lee or, yeah, or like what was absolutely. your take on on bob sap in in pro wrestling at, at this point well firstly like it really is just fantastic to see like he he just is a massive man like he just mm. is he's six foot five and I think maybe 160 kg or something. And like, essentially, the the commentator says like this is you know beast versus beast. But yeah, and Nakanishi is not a small man by any means. And Sap still terrors over him, and it's it's quite insane. The the first spot is really interesting because what happens is Nakanishi comes out, tries to take Sap down, um, like you would if you're in a shoot against a big man, um, and gets like powerbomb like out of his boots basically right away. Mm. This was actually a tactic that, that Sab had been taught to do in a shoot fight against um, Noguera on the K1 Pride card. And Josh Barnett was was um, was training him. And, and Josh Barnett's like always been a pro wrestling fan, even when he was kind of solely in MMA. And, and then he's moved between the two worlds a little bit every now and again since then. But he, his take was like, yeah, like Sap is a massive man. Um, we're we're gonna just try these crazy moves, and he tried power bombs, and like, he was trained to try power bombs and pile drivers against um, Nogueira, and he executed both of them. So, um, you know, he, Sap also like he, he just had a crazy year because it was as you said, Sap Mania. Yeah. He had four MMA fights and four kickboxing matches at the same time, um, and I think this would have been before. I think what happened was basically he started getting knocked out too many times, and and just started to I think again. With big men, your expectation is that they they have this mentality of being aggressive, and and Sap Sap seems like quite a nice guy. He doesn't seem like mm. the kind of he wants to to hurt people for a living. But this was definitely his high point, um, and both in pro wrestling, MMA, and kickboxing, um, you know, his record was pretty good actually at this time. But over time, then he just he just started to increasingly lose. And, and like, for instance, he, he lost the Noguera fight as well uh, via submission. And yeah, just someone not suited to um, to MMA. Um, and maybe with pro wrestling, I think if he'd been managed a bit more carefully, he would have he would have had a bit more longevity. Yeah, and I think like this is, you know, as, as Jordan Breen says in, in the book, like we, we get a lot of people at this point where it's like, if you were, you know, a lot of like pro wrestlers playing in MMA, um where the take-home is oh if only they dedicated themselves wholly into mma this person would be a really good fighter you know or like if only uh this fighter had dedicated themselves wholly to pro wrestling they'd be a really good pro wrestler you know but like the, these people in the in-between are the, are the ones that, that fall through the cracks but i think like the 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 sap nakanishi match is really really good like it's genuinely oh, yeah uh really fantastic you know especially when you consider that the point in the career bob sap is um but like you know he has a really you know you see you really i think get to see why 
um you know the the japanese public was so smitten with bob sap because he he definitely has uh, this huge unreal charisma and an incredibly like athletic individual for his size as, as well you know yeah um i, I mean there's a point where it, it, they have multiple referees in this match because yeah. of how big sap is and then there's a point where nakanishi he gets nakanishi into the corner and you know uh, the the head ref or whomever calls for a break Sap ignores him and literally now they're small enough guys but they're still full-size men six or seven guys come towards Sap and he actually swats them away with one hand it's okay. it's incredible like I, I thought that was just tremendous and yeah like just just even within doing that like you can see why he was such a huge star because he just was this this larger than life figure and, and the finish the finish I think is perfect where he just like all that happens is I think they they do a few like shoulder box spots or something and then at one point, like, Sap just fires up and just, like, clobbers him. Nakanishi falls through the ropes and then, like, that's the end of the match. He just yeah, can't yeah, get yeah. back in. He's just been, like, completely destroyed by him. So, yeah, just just lots of fun. And, and um, yeah, it would have been great to great to see more of this, I think. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I think ultimately what would just sort of, you know, put a really big dark stain on, on Bob Sap, especially in New Japan, sort of history was just the the thing of oh we've we've got this this mixed up but like we didn't you know new japan didn't really have him you know <laughs> like he was yeah sort of you know he was doing k1 he was doing pride you know that that was that was his his bread and butter and, and new japan was this other thing so then you wound up having you know he would be iwgp champion and then like but that wasn't rather than that being the pinnacle of pro wrestling that was just a sort of trinket and a tool that was set dressing for like k1 matches you know instead you know so it it really sort of ha it turned into you know it went from being here's this huge mainstream star that can get lots of attention onto the the company but you know instead just the way they they treated it it turned out being detrimental more than more than anything which was <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I think for a lot of them, I think it, it, so much of the time was was where could they earn the best payday? And, and at the time, yeah, it was especially within MMA and actually even truthfully in K1. You know, K1 was was massive at the time. And um, for somebody like SAP, you know, that that was what made the most sense. You know, I think uh, doing one-off shots and, and that kind of stuff for, for within pro wrestling made sense too. Um, but yeah, obviously for them, that that was where the money was, and for him, um, you know, 2002 would have been that year when when you know he would have he would have been quite in demand, and, and uh, I mean he was also a mainstream star on, on ch chat shows and, and that kind of stuff in Japan at the time as well, wasn't he? He was, yes. Um, we were, yeah. <laughs> to to give the peep behind the curtain, I I recorded the the 2003 episode uh, before this one. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I was very proud of, of digging up a little bit of Bob Sapp's pop music career. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, now I've spoiled it. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. No, but I mean, the, yeah, the, the whole nine yards when it, when it comes to, yeah, cele celebrity presence. Um, yeah. Phenomenal. I, I imagine even now, like, you know, he'll probably wake up every now and then and, and think about just how fucked up and surreal that period of his life was. Um, um, yeah, I mean, that was one of the things to, to sort of jump ahead. But when Pride sort of uh, lost the Fuji TV deal, uh, Mark Hunt actually wrote in his book that um, he really missed uh, going on the, the, the chat shows because Fuji obviously have like, I think, some pretty big, uh, you know, variety shows and that kind of thing. And that was one of the reasons why Pride actually went down along with everything else. You know, they couldn't promote 
um, the fights as much because they couldn't push the fighters of stars on Variety TV and another Fuji outlets. So yeah, huge, huge importance in terms of establishing um, mixed martial arts in Japan was being able to get these guys out there and, and kind of say, well, you know, ha- have them doing something crazy on a, on a chat show and then, you know, promoting their fight that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So as we finish up here, four Tokyo Dome shows um, throughout 2002. Uh, Lee, looking back, which was, uh, you know, I, I sort of said I, I definitely think Tokyo Anniversary is, is my favorite of these four. But uh, which which was really your, your high point of 2002? UFO legend? Uh, yeah, probably not. No, I think this, I, I quite like the spiral, actually, I think really between the Rutan match and the, the SAP match. Um, and even the China, the Chono versus China one, um, and yeah, Nagata versus Fujita is on that card too. So for me, yeah, that was in terms of the people that I guess I'm sort of interested in and, and kind of gravitate towards. That's probably the the high point. But um, there's something something a little bit in, in most of these cards. I think for everybody, and even UFO is interesting from a historical perspective. You know, if you're if you're into Pride and into that era, um, yeah. So I guess uh, I guess I guess would probably be the spiral for me overall. Okay. Uh, all right. Thanks. Thanks again so much for for joining us, uh, Lee. Before we before we get out of here, uh, just tell all the people one more time uh, about the book and and how's it coming along and and when can we expect to read more about Pride in English? Yeah. So as we record this, the Indiegogo campaign is is ongoing, um, and people can get a limited edition of the book through that. But I think by the time it comes out, that that will have passed and will be over because it's it's only a week to go. Um, but if you go to beforefallbook.com, um, that will redirect you to um, probably Amazon where you'll be able to buy the book there and um, find out a bit more information. The the social media channels are beforefallbook, all one word as well, um, on Twitter and beforefallbook on Facebook as well. And um, yeah, that's where you can go to get all the information. And um, yeah, and any support or any feedback or questions people have, more than happy to, to take them there at the, the social media outlets. Okay, cool. Thanks so much, Lee. Uh, next time we'll be looking at 2003 and I'll be joined by another author um, in Jonathan Snowden. Uh, he's going to come on and chat 2003 with me. Um, so a real book club feel over the, <laughs> over the last um, few episodes here. Um, and yes, again, you can uh, get Eggshells Progressing in the Tokyo Dome from Amazon.com or by contacting me directly. Go ahead and, and reach out to at ReasonJP on Twitter and uh, we'll chat to you next time. Thanks very much.